Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. You know what rhymes with Friday? Wine! Welcome to Whiny About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two long, long-time besties lying. with Bressie, two lying bitches whine about women from Herstory that you probably haven't heard of because women didn't exist until 2023. Jeez. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we're going to whine about some women from Herstory that you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Oh, I'm like, did, did you dramatic forget who pause. you were? No, dramatic oh, pause. You, you really captivated me. I'm like, oh God, what is she going to say? Is this where she introduces her new persona? <laughs> Kelly. Kelly. <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> I'm French, but I can't speak the language. Well, welcome to our continuation of celebrating Black History Month again. We cover black women all year round, but this is the month where we exclusively cover black women. So... Get it, get in or get the fuck out. I don't know. We don't care. Yeah, I don't care. It's fine. Just kidding, I love we you. are still jamming out to the tattoo girl wine because it's too good to just not polish off. Oh my God. Seriously, this wine is um I might be in a committed relationship with this wine. Like I could yeah. see me spending the rest of my life or its life. With We're this now wine. in a three-way committed relationship. Me and yes. Emily and this wine. We have a Boston marriage with this wine and everything is fine. It's great. Also, if you want to know more about Boston marriages, subscribe to our Patreon for as little as $1 a month for our bonus history happenings. Because we have one about Boston marriages and how sexy they were. Or sometimes not sexy. Who knows? It's fine. Depending on the people. All right. Well, I think we're just going to... Launch gonna, like, into it. Yeah, let's just launch into this. Let's go. Wait, we need to cheers. We at least need okay. to cheers to something. Cheers to... Okay. Cheers to the dichotomy of how Black History Month is awesome because we get to, you know, promote black stories, but also how it should just be history and we shouldn't need a month dedicated to it and the complicated feelings that gives us. Yay. Cheers. I had a black professor in college and like on the very first day he's like one thing you need to know about me I don't think we should have black history month and like this is a Wisconsin school yeah. we're like what 99.9 percent African-American literature no it was no. uh playwrights of color I took African-American literature yeah. which was a great class but I think I had the same teacher yeah no no he was he was such a great professor that class was fucking amazing it was fascinating yeah. um but like, so the class of like either 100% or 99.9% white Midwesterners were all like, oh, you can't say that. Right. <laughs> it's then, so funny. But then he explained why I'm like, that's literally the first time I've ever heard someone say that. I've heard that argument, you know, elsewhere. I'm like, no, that, that makes sense. And I'm not going to, I'm not leading the charge against like Black History Month or anything, but I do believe that it should be incorporated into our standard history it is our history right it's just like just women, history just like women's history is our history right. it's all important yes well kelly yes you are actually going first yes this I week. Am. <laughs> yes so i'm not i'm not just jumping the gun and trying to pressure you into going first so i don't have to so okay this was gonna start out talking about their mother and then i just, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of information about their mother 
So I'm whining about Millie and Christine McCoy. Oh, oh sometimes so- just called Millie Christine. Yeah. Wait, are are these two separate people? No, they're conjoined twins. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> what? Yes. Oh my god. Okay, how insulting is that to just like mash their names together? Because they're they're not I a know. celebrity couple. Calm they, down. They were known as Millie Christine or the Carol Carolina twins. There's a whole bunch of different. Oh names my for god. Them. Okay, I think this is the first conjoined twins we've ever done. I know yeah. it's not a common thing. No. Okay, I'm 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 hooked. I'm hooked. <laughs> Let's do this. So, Millie and Christine were born in Whiteville, North Carolina, on July 11th, 1851, to Jacob and Manemia. Manemia, and that's who I was originally going to cover because she features in the story quite a bit, but. There just wasn't enough information on just her. Yeah, it's more about her involvement with her daughters. Um, So their last name was McCoy because it was a bastardization of their slave owner's name, which was McKay. Yeah. Um, So they were enslaved by a man named Jabez, which I'm just like... Jabez? Jezebel. I don't know why that's where my friends... Yeah, Jabez McKay on the McKay farm... So prior to the twins' birth, their mother had given birth to seven other children, five boys and two girls, all normal, quote unquote, normal, standard, typical, (laughs) typical. Um, And so Millie and Christine were born when they were infants. They were examined by a multitude of doctors, including the discoverer of chloroform, Dr. James Simpson, all the way in Edinburgh. Ooh, in Edinburgh, yeah. Scotland. But so they were born together, conjoined. Um, they weighed 17 pounds at birth for the two of them. Oh, my God. Um, and they were joined. Um, the This is the actual medical report. So, okay. Quote, Millie and Christine are united at the lateral posterior posterior portion of the pelvis the sacrum and the coccyx are joined the lower part of the spinal cord united so basically they're conjoined at like the lower spine slash pelvis slash butt it it, so at about a 90 degree angle from each other yeah in in photos of them it looks like they're posing for like uh an abc odd couple sitcom where they're like standing back to back and they're like this guy and this guy yeah yeah so not like anything that would be like super like they're not sharing any organs or anything mm-hmm. like that. They all have they each have two arms, two legs. They're just joined at the very bottom of their butt and back. Okay. Um so they were sold for the first time at 10 months of age mm. to a man named John C. Purvis, which I was like, mm, that name. I hate it. So they would they reached so McKay, their owner, their parents' owner. The the slave owner. Yep. Yep. And John Purvis reached an agreement where he would take the girls and like exhibit them and then pay a percentage back to McKay. So that's the original agreement. This is so gross. It is. Just just the, the commoditization of human beings. But is here's so the nasty. thing, like this isn't even this is probably more about them being conjoined twins. No, no, I understand that, but the fact that these so gross. It these gets worse. Ten month old babies were able to be bought and sold, but then you have to create a, a business arrangement. Like, right. well, I'll pay you a percentage of the money I make from right. exhibiting them. Like, what? Yeah, 
So 14 months after the original sale, so they were 24 months old, so two years, two years old, they were sold to another showman with the last name Brower, um, who was backed by a wealthy merchant named Joseph Pearson Smith. Joseph's the bigger name here. Okay. So Brower would go on to exhibit the girls first in uh, at the at the North Carolina's first state fair held in the 1853. So they were exhibited there, which the fair itself would attract around 4,000 to 6,000 daily visitors. And they were like just a little sideshow, mm-hmm. which was very like, unfortunately, freak shows were very common yes. back then. So they were just part of that. When the fair ended, oh, but the cool thing about it is um, Brower allowed their mom to go with them because it was in North Carolina. So he was like, yeah, you can come and like stay with your girls for the duration of the fair, basically. So what surprises me about that is because families were constantly oh, broken yes. up because human beings are being sold as chattel and you don't like if you're selling a calf, you don't like, oh, well, the mom's going to be sad. Like that's how Probably these pe- two years old, maybe. That, but that's how these these human beings are being 100%. treated. So I'm actually surprised that the mother got Same. to ever see them again right. or even knew what happened to them. Right. Um, so when the fair ended, uh, Menemia would return back to the plantation and Brower would take the twins to New Orleans where they would again be verified as authentic conjoined twins by medical doctors. While in New Orleans, the twins were kidnapped. Oh my God. And would not reappear um, publicly for about a year. I'm sorry. These children are abducted and like held captive for a year before they're put back on display. So here's what happened. Brower met a man who promised to pay him $45,000 for the pair of conjoined twins for Millie and Christine. And then took the twins and was like, oh, I'll send you the promissory note. And then didn't. Was he a Nigerian prince I have too? No, yeah, exactly. Oh my God. It, like, again, this right. is what happens when you're treating human beings like right. chattel. Like, that's that's disgusting. So Brower would take that promissory note back to Smith, who was his like investor. Mm-hmm. So Smith technically has the promissory note for the girl. So Smith is technically their rightful owner because he has that promissory note and was never paid. Yeah. Anyways, the other people that took them. So in 1854, Millie and Christine finally like reappeared in a museum in Philadelphia. The museum was operated by Colonel John Wood, who was a student of P.T. Barnum. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Ever um, heard of them? <laughs> and then uh, after they were done being showed at that museum, they would actually go and be placed in P.T. Barnum's American Museum in downtown Manhattan. Um, and for those who don't know, P.T. Barnum was famous for exhibiting um, sideshow performers um, such as um, Zip the Pinhead, George and Willie Muse, and like all of these other people that had a some lot sort of, of physical deformity generally. A lot of the sideshow and like freak show and circus things that we just think of as being quintessential to that time in circuses. Think he, of P.T. Barnum. Yeah, like he, he, he was he, the one behind the, I think it was the Tahiti Mermaid, yep. where it was just the top half of a dried up monkey. Yeah, it was really weird. Sewn on to the bottom half of yeah. a fish. And he's, he's like, it's real. He's the one, like, if you think of like, the standard freak show. He's the one that kind of like made it famous. Yeah. When they weren't like a traveling one, he was like an established, it was weird Mm -hmm. anyways. So like I said, 
Brower returned to North Carolina and Smith um, went actually to Monomia. Jesus, I don't know why that name, like... Well, messes with me. We've also almost polished off this bottle of wine. It's that like, what, 13.5 ABV? Yep. So, so uh, Smith actually went to Menemia. I don't know if he, I think he ended up buying the mom and like the other, like the rest of the family. Okay. Um, And he and the mom searched for three years for the twins. Oh my, okay. So they're searching for them. And then I'm going to talk about like what the twins are doing. This poor woman. I know. It's like not not only your your children are born into slavery, they're being bought and sold, but then it's just like, oh, right. by the way, your children were abducted and we have no idea where they are. So well, now that's why I'm I was going originally to, gonna cover yeah. her is because she's not only does she have like permission, quote unquote, but she she doesn't care if she has permission. She's like, No, I'm gonna find my kids. Yeah. Oh um, God, what a nightmare. What a fucking nightmare right so the kids would go on to appear in canada and then would show up or, and then um millie and christine would show up in liverpool england oh my like, god so they're getting taken all over the fucking they're place. being smuggled across international lines i, I, I just want to put this in true crime yeah, terms exactly. because that's what's happening so remember at this point they had been separated from their home and their mother in north carolina for the majority of their young lives they're only like five at this point oh um Eventually, Smith would hire a private investigator who would trace the girls to Europe. Um, And what's kind of interesting is Smith actually brought his mother or their mother with him when he went to get them from Europe. Okay. So I'm like, that's kind of cool. I mean, like he's still not the best person. But um, so they would be reunited on New Year's Day in 1857. The girls were about five and a half years old at this time. And remember, they had spent most of their life in the care of people who had kidnapped them. They don't even know who their mother is. Like, this woman is so excited to see them and be reunited. And, probably, and like, they're like, the fuck are you? Yeah. I mean, and and, and this is yeah. all that they know. Right. So they, when they were reunited with their mom, the, the three of them were like, just they, they toured together because... Of course, the owner is going to want to make money, but they would tour Scotland. And while touring Scotland with her twins, um, Manemia would give birth to another daughter. Oh, my God. Yep. This woman's just like, yep. So they would go on both. Well, Smith and then Manemia with him. Um, the Smith would go on to sue the kidnappers to regain custody of Millie and Christine. Yeah. So he would win obviously and the sisters would return to wadesboro north carolina with him where yeah smith had bought and relocated her parents and all of the siblings so he is keeping the family together which is a a lot more than you can say for a lot of slave owners at that time i yeah i mean here's the thing we're not giving this guy any props or any apologies we're just trying to say he's slightly better than a lot of other people we're trying to examine the actions and events within the context of their time by no means are we giving this guy a pat on the back, but right. we are also trying to examine the story within the context of its time. Right. So Millie and Christine got to be with their family, which was amazing. And um, the owners provided them with an education, taught them to speak five different languages, dance, play music, and sing. Hmm. Well, I wonder why. Yeah, because then they're a better side. Because <laughs> to look at look right. at conjoined exactly twins, what it is. it's this you know there there's this uh, visual like fascination. But then to to, to uh, 
Sorry, this wine's well, then getting you, to me. And then you add that they are African American and yep. like all of this stuff. But then to see them perform, right. like they're they're like trick ponies, you know. Um. <sighs> so once they re- once they returned between learning all these fancy things, Smith took them on a riverboat tour of the Mississippi, meaning they were performing on a riverboat mm-hmm. during the Civil War, which was quickly coming. Um. Smith would hide the girls away so that they would not be taken away by Union troops, a.k.a. kidnapped again. Well, kidnapped, liberated. It's, Maybe it's, a little bit of both. It's ri- it, right. <laughs> so um, during the lines the, are getting weird. Right. During the war, uh, sadly, sarcastically, Smith died. Shocking. Well, I, I don't know if he was a soldier or not. I couldn't find it. Didn't care. Um but the girls, the estate, and the other 30 slaves that he owned uh, were left to Mary Smith, who was his wife. Um, she sold about 12 of the slaves and a good chunk of the estate to cover his debts. But, of course, she kept the rest of the slaves, particularly the twins. Um, of course, we know the Emancipation Proclamation was quickly coming. However, this would not change absolutely anything for the twins because nope. Mary coerced um, the parents into signing a contract stipulating that the twins would remain in her service for five years, promising that the parents would get part of the profit from their performances. The reason that they got him to sign this contract is because um, Mary Smith, along with the local law enforcement, told the parents that the emancipation would not last. And of course, they're going to believe them because like, they're not educated, unfortunately. Like they, they've been denied education, and also th- this whole time, what they're trying to do is what's best for their children, right? Who have already been through it. This right. whole family has been through such significant trauma. You're looking for the absolutes. You're looking for the guarantees, and the guarantee exactly. in this case, I understand why they went for it because the parents are getting some of the profits. Like they know Mary Smith. You know, like, like they, they know what to expect. Right. And versus, they're like, okay, at least our daughter's taken care of. And, and if they're saying like, oh, my daughter's going to be a slave anyways, at least this way they'll get out. Like they'll, the, the twins will get out in five years and then they won't be a slave anymore. Like I get it. Well, and I can understand after this long and deeply rooted tradition of, or practice, not tradition of slavery of not believing that the emancipation proclamation yeah. was going to last and under considering it took like what two years for the fucking get to texas for yeah yeah for enslaved people in texas to finally be free like so mad about that i get the skepticism i get the fear and And, i get the desperation how easy it would be to be strong-armed into that oh god yes no they're in a they're in a very vulnerable position and this this mary smith is taking full advantage of that that is gross so they would go on to report this to the freedmen's bureau uh which would initiate an investigation and a trial that would last quite a while so just a side note on what the freedmen's bureau is is in 1865 near the end of the civil war because remember the the emancipation proclamation technically happened in in 1863 but the war didn't end until 65 there's this whole thing anyways but at the end of the war congress established what was known as the bureau of refugees freedmen and abandoned lands also known as the freedmen's bureau this bureau was built to reconstruct um, to assist in the reconstruction of the South and aid the newly freed African-Americans in this transition to freedom. 
It operated in all 15 of the southern states and border states, including Washington, D.C. The Bureau was responsible for reuniting families, legalizing marriages, providing health care and legal services, and helping build schools, particularly in North Carolina. One of the Bureau's most, like vicious fights that was going on was its effort to end apprenticeship contracts where black children were working for white families after slavery under an apprenticeship, which is bullshit. It, it, it sounds like kind of this coercive like contract yep. deal. Yeah. Well, the United States historically has been really good at when one form of oppression becomes outlawed of like massaging right. it into a new form of oppression. Right. Yeah. So it took, Two, in, in North Carolina in particular, it took two years and the enforcement of a new state law to end the practice and make all of the contracts null and void for these God. apprenticeships. Yeah. Anyways, so in October of 1865, Jacob and Menemia would a- appeal to the Freedmen's Bureau for help regaining custody of their twin daughters, Millie and Christine, against Mary, mm-hmm. um, who was, like I said, exhibiting them as a sideshow attraction and refusing to emancipate the twins after the emancipation proclamation. Um, and basically at, at this point she had been separating them from their family for a good eight years. God's sakes. So they're appealing to this bureau, which this is literally what the bureau was created to do. Um, so they presented the bureau with a contract that they had gone to lawyers in New York to draw up. That basically was stating that the twins should be treated humanely and should not be handled by others. And um, that Mary frequently subjected Millie and Christine to invasive examinations by doctors and scientists and like all of this stuff. Basically, they appointed a woman named Nancy Hurley to travel and care for the twins um, and also stipulated a regularly monthly payment because they were like, if our girls still want to like travel and stuff will have this woman with them and that she will be their manager she's, that she's a guardian choosing instead you know yeah she's because an obviously approved guardian jacob and Manemia still have what like seven other children i think yeah. i said you know so like they're like we're fine if the girls still want to like use their talents and this is the guardian we would like them to have basically. no and i and i actually i think that's um that's that that's a creative way to deal with it because again the this is all the girls have known this like traveling and performing right and you know y- you can say they've kind of been trained to enjoy this or whether it or not is. but having someone there to look out for their best interests that the parents approve of who are actually going to care about them who aren't who isn't like directly who's benefiting from their good care versus right. their exploitation that's huge. Right. I mean, how many celebrities do you hear about where like their own parents couldn't do that job because right. they're just exploiting their kids? So the Freedman Freedmen's Bureau ordered Mary to appear at trial with the twins in November of 1865. When she appeared without the girls, agents suspected that she planned to smuggle them to Europe if the if the courts ruled against her, so she was promptly arrested. Could these girls stop getting kidnapped? Like, could people? Sorry. That was putting the onus on them. Could people stop Stop kidnapping kidnapping these children? So, Bureau Agent Clinton Siley ruled that Millie and Christine should be returned to their parents. However, the contract Jacob and Menemia signed with Mary Smith was legally binding. So they were like, well, they should probably be in your owner, but technically this is legally binding. 
Um, however, before the contract could take effect, he stipulated that the North North Carolina Jacob had the right to appoint a guardian for his daughters and enforce fair payments, noting that the twins were 14 years old at this time, meaning that Siley believed that they could think for themselves and should have a say in redrafting their contract. So basically the contract that the parents had drawn up was deemed unlawful and would not take effect. However, days after his initial ruling, which basically would put the girls back with their parents, he reversed his decision and decided, um, yeah, that, that it was valid and that, um, Mary had like that they had to uphold that contract. And so Mary was still in charge of them, but she did get, she did have to actually pay them because she wasn't fulfilling her contractual obligations because she wasn't giving them money. That's, that's all of this. This whole conversation is so fucking sleazy and I hate it. Part of his justification for it was that they had taught them to read and write and like basically gave them an education. And I'm like, that's so bullshit oh you owe them is that what this is that right like okay i i understand in a lot of these legal proceedings across the board across the board a lot of it comes down to this like nitpicky litigious bullshit right let's talk about what's actually right here these children who have been exploited starting at 10 months old deserve to be with their fucking family Right. Because, or do whatever the hell they want to do. Because they are people. And the fact that this has to be argued legally and that anyone can rationalize like, oh, well, because of this piece of paper, they actually sign away their autonomy. Like, it's disgusting. Right. It's foul. Right. It's absolutely foul. It 100% is. So, unfortunately, Millie and Christine would remain in the custody of Mary Smith and continue to perform under her. Jacob and Manemia would... um appear in the Freedmen's Bureau records again, and they would never stop trying to regain custody of their daughters. Thankfully, the contract was only for five years, so their daughters would essentially age out of slavery after five years. Yeah. Well, at this point, it was like three more years. We, we've we talked about some of the, some of the northern gross. states when they um, initiated some kind of emancipation where it's like, oh, hey, at, if you're this many years old, yeah. by the time you're this many years old, you're out. Like, like you, yeah. again, this You'd whole- age out of slavery. And I'm like, that is the weirdest fucking well, thing. Because we can't take this super free workforce away from the land on ours. So like, because that wouldn't be fair so right. we're gonna like put it to his it's no it's all gross it's so, all gross yeah for the rest of the century the twins would enjoy a successful career known as the two-headed nightingale this was both under mary's supervision custody whatever bullshit and once they were free emancipated right. officially because some of the records I found, like, it sounded like they kept her on as her manager after. Some, some it sounded like they moved to someone else. So it, it, eventually they were, yeah, emancipated slash free, and they may still have been working for her. I don't know. But anyways, yeah. so the first place they went after the Civil War was Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, and New York City. They would be examined by multiple doctors again and would actually appear in P.T. Barnum's museum again, which I think <laughs> is very interesting. 
Um, there, there was a limited, you know, there was a limited number of people who were running right. these kinds of attractions, though. You're going to run into the same people. Right. Once they left P.T. Barnum's this time, Millie and Christine would actually p- travel with another pair of conjoined twins named Chang and Ang Bunker. Oh! Yeah, so another very famous pair of conjoined there, twins. There is a plaster cast of their bodies while, while they were alive. Yep. Um, that is featured, I think, at the Philadelphia Mütter Museum, which is the next time I go to Philadelphia, I want to hit that up hard. Yeah, and they were not necessarily opposite of Millie and Christine, but they were they were conjoined at the chest, like the side yeah. of the chest, which is very very interesting. They, they were they were facing each other while Millie and Christine were kind of like oriented away. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it is the Mütter Museum. Yep. I just looked it up. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to go uh, last time I went to Philadelphia because I, I, I was there for a wedding. Yeah. And let's go. Oh my God. Can we? Because it is a dream. I had Actually, so much fun going to Texas with you. We need to travel again. My, my friend went there and they knew that I was like really into that stuff. So they got me a, a magnet that nice. I still have on my fridge. And it's like one of the shrunken heads they have on display. I love it. So Millie and Christine would then tour New England, spending time in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Maine, for those people who don't know what New England is. Um, and then they would go on to travel to uh, with the Smiths. So this is, I think, the last year they were under her, because this is 1870, so that would be five years. Um, they would travel through the Midwest, particularly Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Kansas, and Nebraska. I'm sorry, did you say Pennsylvania? Yep, apparently that's part of the Midwest. It is super, no. it's absolutely but not. But according to 1870. <laughs> well, okay, to be fair, in 1870, like, no. the makeup of the United States looked a lot different. They, so they went from New England <laughs> to the Midwest, so maybe they hit Pennsylvania on their way through. We literally, here's the thing, as Minnesotans, we were literally the West yeah. for a while. Oh, what, there there was a minute we were the West. I actually, okay, I... um. I had to explain to someone who's uh who's not a native of the United States. They were like, "Why do they call this the Midwest?" Like, they didn't understand. Like, well, that's we because we used to be the West. I'm like, well, that's because one, we used to be the West, but also we're the midpoint to get to the West. Yep. And they're like, "Oh, that that makes yes. a lot of sense." For I'm our like, non-American listeners, that's why the middle of the the state is called the Midwest, the upper middle, and yeah, the particular. Then it's just the yeah. South. That is kind of weird. Then it's the Southwest. And then you got the Northwest. South Midwest. Anyways. There is, I feel like, a whole general area where, like, no one knows what to call it. "Mm." What what is Nebraska? It's Nebraska. It's Nebraska. Um, So around this time, while they were doing this touring through New England and then the Midwest, um, a biography on the twins titled History and Medical Description of the Two-Headed Girl... It really annoys me because I'm like, they are basically two separate entities. So the fact that you're calling them girl instead of girls bothers me. Also, they're not two-headed. There is two complete bodies. Yes. Anyways, when I wrote that, I was like ranting to myself. But yeah. Good for you. But So they wrote this, or this biography was written and then sold during their public appearances, which is kind of gross. 
Um, what is really interesting though is around this time when they were about 17 years old, the girls actually wrote like a memoir themselves. Shut up. That was later discovered by like a court reporter. And um basically they this person, uh Joanne Fish Martell, used the memoir she discovered and then other sources to create a book that's known as Millie Christine Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, which was actually published in 2000. Um yeah. So during this time, the twins are still touring. They developed their motto called as God decreed, we agreed. And they really strove to turn any impediments that they had into assets. So as toddlers, obviously, they were super clumsy and fell down quite frequently. Um, Together, they eventually developed a sideways walk that by this time turned into a very crowd-pleasing like dance style. Oh, nice. They would go back and forth. They would actually go on to master keyboard duets um, with one soprano and one alto voice, and they would learn to harmonize together. It's probably why they were called the Nightingale, or the, the, what what was it? The, the... the, the, the oh two-headed God. nightingale the two he- still bothers me Actually, but they, if they chose that name it's fine again it's it's talking singularly they're yep. a nightingale i know but if they chose the name it's fine yep um i, I get it i get the marketing yeah. behind that so they did all this stuff and then millie and christine would go on a european tour which is super cool um they would seek some, before they went to Europe, they would go to fil- stop back in Philadelphia briefly to seek uh, like medical treatment. And so there are some like medical photographs because the attending physician was like, I'm taking these photographs and putting them in my book, which is super creepy. I Creepy. Here's the thing. If he had their consent, that's one thing. But right. he was just like, sound like I'm going to take these pictures. It sounds like yeah. he probably didn't need their consent, Ooh. which is the dark part. Um, they would do one last performance after Philadelphia. They would stop briefly in New York, do one last performance in the U S for the next seven years because they would go to Europe. Nice. So they started out performing in great Britain and would actually perform for queen Victoria and her family who would gift them both with diamond studded combs and matching brooches for them to wear, which I think is super cool. I love that. I I love that. Like, okay. They're doing the performing. It, it feels like they're doing it on their own. And wait. I was going to say they're traveling in a group. But yes, they're doing it on their own. Like like they're not owned, they're not by, owned by someone. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, They're not enslaved. They're they're taking control of their careers. And like they're killing it. Like, right. I'm sorry. Like Mary Smith, when you like enslaved us like i don't know we bebopped around but now that we're on our own we're performing in front of the queen so suck like, and, and she's die. giving us fucking diamonds yeah comb, so maybe suck so and die <laughs> so one of the other like big events was they would attend a wedding of their fellow performers anna swan and martin van buren bates uh in london they would then tour around like the rest of england and then go to russia performing for the heinz circus which is like I think one of the most famous circuses in Russia, like, or at least it was, they would then arrive back in the United States. Like I said, seven years later, um, going back to Philadelphia, performing in the concert hall. And then they headed West for 18 months touring on the West coast. Um, and though the twins continued to perform both in the United States and in the United kingdom for the second half of the 1880s and the 1890s, 
um, they saw them touring like less and less. They would go on to build a large 14 room house in Columbus County, North Carolina at the location. Like they bought the plot of land where they had previously been enslaved and like brought their whole family there. I fucking love that. I know. Like talk about sticking it to fucking Mary Smith. I can't, I can't remember, um, the, the gentleman's name right now, but there was an enslaved man who actually like commandeered a boat and sailed to freedom through a bunch of Confederate checkpoints, like a, like a goddamn badass. And I think the slave owner was his father because there is obviously a, Mm -hmm. you know, a non-consensual situation going on there. But anyway, he, he became, you know, he, he got his freedom and, you know, made made a life for himself and then he went back and bought the plantation like like like, like, but that whole like this is mine now right this should have always been mine and i love that she like bought it she built this house she brought her family in and like and a huge theme of the story is like try and keep this family together and it's like not only are we reclaiming the land of this trauma right but we're using it to keep our family together um so millie and christine would eventually retire you know, to North Carolina and just kind of like live a quiet life as they got older. Um, on October 8th, 1912, Millie and Christine would die um, age 61 of tuberculosis. Um, Christine would die just 12 hours prior to her sister. So they, they went pretty quick one right after the other. So originally they were buried in unmarked graves, which is super fucking depressing. But then, in, what? but then in 1969, they were found and then moved to a cemetery in Whiteville. Engraved on their tombstone are the following words, quote, a soul with two thoughts, two hearts that beat as one. Which I think is really sweet. That is really sweet. Like, because they very much, like, it's very clear that they cared for each other. And then that, like, love of the family as a whole that their mother really, like, impressed upon them clearly carried through their life as well. And what I love about that is it's acknowledging two hearts, two people, but they're united. Right. And it's not just because of the the physical, the physicality of being conjoined. Right. And I know I didn't talk like a ton about like their stuff, but like that's what I could find. And I still wanted to like shine a spotlight on them because I think it's really important because I feel like people like that aren't always viewed as people. And... So, yeah, like when I read about their story, like I said, it, it originally was going to be about their mom, but there's like nothing about her. Um, And so, yeah, like I was like, no, this is. Yeah. Well, and Millie and Christine, that that's an amazing story. And, and also Minomia. the. Like this could be a movie because you have the emotional elements of a family of motherhood of trying to protect your children of you know the, the to the backdrop of slavery and the civil war and oh, yeah. exploitation and you know like these 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 girls from day one are put in a position where their autonomy is constantly taken from them and then for them to gain it back and actually i was super happy to hear you say that they have a memoir because what i was noticing um was that like there was a huge lack of what the hell did they think? What the hell did they experience? What was their impression of this when they saw their mother who they did not know? 
you know? Right. Uh, was it, was it Sarah Rankin or the, the little, okay. You covered her. Um, she was the little girl who inherited like a bunch of scrub land that turned out to be super valuable. And she became like the first millionaire or something. I don't remember. But part of too many women. I know. I know. It's really, it's, and I see her on these lists too. Um, let me know when you come up with her name because I know you're looking it up. But part of her story that was really frustrating is that we don't get to hear from her. Right. We get to hear we get to hear about all the things that happen to her and happen around her. And that's kind of how this story is. Like I know, like like when you're uh, and this isn't a criticism on you because obviously you're you're using the information available. But the whole time I'm like, when do I get to hear from Millie and Christine? When do I get to hear what they have to say? Because I want to know. They're, I feel like their impressions are going to be the most honest and true to this whole experience, and they're just lost. Okay, Rankin is not the correct last name. Oh. That's Jeanette Rankin, who oh, was a U.S. state senator. Shit. Oh, my God, you're right. You're right. Um, hold on. I'm going to look this up. Sarah, Sarah Rector. <laughs> Together, yeah, she became like that oil magnate yes. because she got like scrub land that everyone thought was shit land. Which is why they gave it to exactly. her. Sorry, sorry. That's why Sarah Rankin, oh, Sarah yeah. Rector. I was close. I'm really good Don't at worry, getting- I got there too. I'm really good at getting my initials down. Yeah, the 11-year-old like, that became like a millionaire fucking overnight. That's right, that's right. Her story. So that, that's episode- um, 92 if anyone wants to go listen to it her story is pretty fucking amazing it's it's so crazy but also just well and that the was fact more, that her voice is that completely was like left out more fucking yeah because it was like oh she has all this money let's put it in this trust and do this and it, that was more fucking bullshit the, he, here's a tldr she was given land as a hey sorry you used to be a slave but this is worthless land turned right. out the land wasn't worthless and then everyone decided everyone was like let's steal your money everyone decided they had a stake in that land no. so hey guys we know times have been tough lately for all of us and during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to, or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. Well, thank you for sharing that story. It was, 
it was a, it was an emotional roller coaster. I I'm I'm still kind of recovering, um, but I think I will be able to tell you the story of the woman I'm whining about, Elizabeth Freeman. And we did not plan this, but my story also has some legal bullshit and also like fighting for freedom from enslavement. This was not planned. Uh, Kelly and I are just in sync because we spend too <laughs> much damn time together. Not enough. So I am covering Elizabeth Freeman, who sued for freedom. Yeah. She lawyered up. Yeah. She lawyered up and sued for freedom. So. Much of Elizabeth's life has had to be pieced together from historical records and, you know, existing, like, people who wrote about her and all that. So there is a lot of speculation and many unknowns, but here's what we think we know. And I did try to craft this into, you know, a straightforward narrative so, yeah. while acknowledging Somewhat the parts where we're yeah. like, I don't fucking know. So bear with me. Elizabeth Freeman, better known as Bet or Mum Bet, hmm. like Mum like mom, mom. mom. Yep. Uh, she was born sometime around 1744, maybe. All right. Who knows? Those are we, always the fun ones when you're like, mm, she was born at we, some point. We know she was born and she entered the world. Uh, she was born in Claverack, New York. Uh, she was born into slavery. And uh, with this being the circumstance, Elizabeth was denied the inalienable rights of freedom, bodily autonomy, and choice. She was also subjected to all of the horrors that slavery brought. And this is why when she was only seven years old, she and her younger sister Lizzie were taken from their family by the slave owner, Peter Hogboom, and given to Hogboom's daughter, Hannah, and her husband, Colonel John Ashley as wedding gifts, which was very common practice. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that to like, well, this is just what they did. I'm saying this to be like, this kind of awful shit happened all the time. I couldn't find any information about her parents. I couldn't even find information about what happened to her little sister that this is what I have. So Hannah had been brought up in a strict Dutch culture, and John was a wealthy Yale-educated lawyer, landowner, and community leader. Elizabeth was described as having a strong spirit and a strong sense of self, which put her at odds with the Ashleys, particularly Hannah Ashley. Because Hannah Ashley's brought up, like, in this very strict, like, traditional gender roles, but also traditional, like, white slave owner black slave enslaved person roles um so elizabeth would actually stand up to the ashleys and try to protect the other enslaved people from their wrath because again when you are allowed to own people you're basically allowed to do whatever you yeah. want which includes people were assholes. brutally abusing them yes so in one instance, th- this story is just truly incredible to me. In one instance, Hannah Ashley tried to strike an enslaved girl with a heated shovel. I'm like, did you like stick it in the fire? Like this metal shovel in the fire and you're like, ooh, this is not only going to hurt, but it's going to like, that's going to like leave a mark. That's more fu- than usual. That's fucking sadistic. So she tried to strike an enslaved girl with a heated shovel. Elizabeth stepped in and like a straight up goddamn superhero Blocked the shovel with her arm. Like, th- this is cinematic. You can see this magic scene of the girl, like, oh, God, no. And then, like, Elizabeth steps in there with her arm right? and is just like, like, bitch, please. Fuck off and right. die. 
This left a deep wound on her arm, which as it healed, Elizabeth left uncovered as a way to shame the Ashleys, show the other enslaved people what they had done to her, and just as a general act of defiance. She's like, I'm going to make you look at what you did to me. And it reminded me, and obviously this is a very different situation, but it reminded me of Jackie Kennedy when she wouldn't change out of that that pink suit right. after JFK yeah. was assassinated, has all the blood she and brain like, no. matter. She's like, I want them to see what has happened. And Elizabeth is like, no, y'all are going to have to stare at this every day and you're going to have to confront what you, what, did. what you did and what has been done to me every day until yeah. this heals. Which I think is like, fuck them. That's badass in one of the few written records we have elizabeth was recorded as saying madam never again again laid her hand on lizzie and i like i read that it was another enslaved girl but knowing her that her sister was named lizzie i wonder if it was her sister she was standing up for can neither confirm nor deny but she goes on to say i had a bad arm all winter but madam had the worst of it. I never covered the wound. And when people said to me before, Madam, why, Betty, what ails your arm? I only answered, ask Mrs., which was the, which, and then she says, which was the slave and which was the real mistress? She's like, I fucking stepped to her so hard. I'm going to have you questioning, like, who's the slave? Right. Like, like, I'm not afraid to call her out in front of every single fucking person. And who's the master? Yeah. Which... Is just amazing. Um, awful that it happened and these circumstances, but Elizabeth is clearly a badass. The Ashleys, being a prominent and well-connected family, hosted a lot of hoity-toity political discussions, which included topics of liberty. <coughs> Bold talk for slave owners. In fact, it was likely that the predecessor to the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Sheffield Declaration, was signed in their home. So this was like, like they're living in Sheffield, Massachusetts, and this was kind of like an early iteration of the Declaration of Independence. I didn't get super into it because it's not terribly important. It just no, shows like it, how it also would probably be a fucking rabbit hole. It's also like they're they're very hoity toity, but also these are the kinds of people that they have in their home and these right. are the kinds of ideas they're discussing, which gave Elizabeth the opportunity to overhear their conversations. Mm. And so she's she's learning. She's smart as hell. And in 1780, she overheard the Ashleys talking about the newly ratified Massachusetts Constitution, which included this damning line. All men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. Elizabeth heard this and was like, huh, what a concept and decided to take action. And so much of this, just like, like, okay, so Elizabeth is uneducated. She's illiterate, but she's putting all of this together on her own. And so, so, so much of this like reeks of political intrigue or like, you know, like covert operations because she hears this and she's like, this is my moment. Let's do this. And she's already incredibly defiant and like, spirited and she's like this isn't right she has that sense of self 
So she reached out to a local attorney and Massachusetts senator. I don't know if he was a senator at the time. He eventually became, again, I don't know. At like, some point, dude was a senator. Yeah. Theodore Sedgwick, who was a noted abolitionist. She said, quote, I heard that paper read yesterday that says all men are created equal and that every man has a right to freedom. I'm not a dumb critter. Won't the law give me my freedom? She's right. like, I'm a fucking human being. Right. She's the, like, this applies to me. The Constitution literally says this. Why aren't we doing anything about it? So it did take some convincing, but Theodore Sedgwick agreed to help. Elizabeth was suing for her freedom in court. She's getting litigious, bitches. Watch out. So joined by another one of the enslaved people under the Ashleys, whose name was Brom, Elizabeth sued the Ashleys for their freedom in the case of Brom and Bet v. Ashley in August of 1781. Sedgwick had partnered with another prominent lawyer, Tapping Reeve, who like opened its own law school in Connecticut, and he was a really big deal, to help their case. The men argued that the line, quote, all men are born free and equal, in the new Massachusetts constitution effectively abolished slavery in the state. They're like, you literally can't have both. You can't. Right. Like Like, that's not how that works. Tell me how this makes sense. And I wish I could find more of the legal proceedings. Like you had a lot of information on that, but I, I couldn't like there was, there was nothing more that I could find other than this very simple, obvious and logical statement But the good news is that the jury sided with Elizabeth and Brom determining they were not legally the property of the Ashleys. Elizabeth and Brom were immediately freed from slavery, awarded 30 shillings each in damages. I don't know how much that is today. I did not look it up. I don't understand shillings. Uh, And they didn't have to pay the cost of the trial. I don't know if the Ashleys did instead. I kind of hope so, because fuck them. So Elizabeth also chose her own name, Elizabeth Freeman. Because she was just bet before, like that's, right. that's what she was known as. And I, I and like I, Elizabeth. Th- throughout this story, I did choose to to use her name Elizabeth Freeman because that's the name that she chose for herself, even if it's not the name that she was primarily known by. Because she deserves to choose her own name. <laughs> so around 1781, Elizabeth did give birth to a child, and the dates on her pregnancy and birth are vague, so I couldn't tell if she had given birth to a child before this case if she was pregnant during or if she gave birth after what the okay. timeline in relation to the case There's was a child <laughs> but she also had a child but i can only imagine how having a child would impact her fight for freedom you know whether she's she realizes she's pregnant during the trial and she's like this isn't just for me it's for the baby if maybe getting pregnant was like, oh my God, I can't let my child go through this. But like, there's just this additional emotional element and it's not just herself she's fighting for. And I, so, so I did want to include that. And this, so the ruling on this whole thing was likely quite a shock to the Ashleys as Elizabeth had just become the first woman to successfully sue for her freedom. Fuck snap, yeah. snap, fuck off. Now is when you drop your phone. Yes, now is when I drop my phone. Sorry, I did cut that out. I dropped my phone earlier at a really weird time, but it wasn't like a cool mic drop time. It's fine. You'll see the last episode. Yes. Add a mic drop appropriate That time. was mic drop appropriate. My phone just, it lost its timing. <laughs> Go home, phone. You're drunk. So John Ashley appealed this decision 
which like no surprise. Uh, So he appealed it with the Supreme Judicial Court, but he dropped the case a few months later. And it's not a coincidence that around the same time, an enslaved man named Quack Walker also successfully sued for his freedom in Massachusetts, also citing the verbiage in the state constitution. Like, can you imagine all these like white dudes writing this? And it's like, yeah, all men are created equal. This isn't going to come to bite us back right, in the like, ass. They're like, by all men, we mean white men. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone in this room. And then all, and then like these enslaved people pick up on it and they're like, um, excuse me. And they're, they're all like, like, you're not supposed to be able to read. Excuse like, me. Yeah. Uh, like seriously, this is why we need to be so alert to any kind of denial of education and voting because that was such a huge part. Historically, across the globe, it has been such a huge part of subjugating other human beings to deny them education, to deny them voting, like all of that. We need to be very sensitive. Like, ooh, I'm sorry, you're saying these people can't go to school? You suck. Like, you're on the wrong side of history. Shut that shit down. So it's likely that the Ashleys were advised or realized themselves that slavery in Massachusetts was coming to an end. And by 1890, it had. Right. Um, So, yeah, in the 1890 Massachusetts census, no one, there were no recorded enslaved people. The Ashleys, in a move that I can't imagine being more tone deaf or arrogant, asked Elizabeth to come back and work for them multiple times. She's like, fuck no. But like paid this time. Yeah, but we'll like pay you. It's like, bitch, you hit me with a hot shovel and you are psychopaths. Right. Like, no, I'm not going to come fucking work for you, bitch. She declined. Good. (laughs) No surprise there. Opting to work for Thomas Sedgwick. Instead, the lawyer that had helped her sue for her freedom. So she worked as a governess taking care of his children, which included Catherine Sedgwick, a writer who uh, she'd become a really prominent writer. And she wrote an account of Elizabeth's life, which is huge considering Elizabeth was illiterate and couldn't have written her own story. So a lot of the quotes that we have and a lot of the records that we have are from Catherine's account. Which I think, I just think it's incredible. Like, who thinks to write about their their nanny? Right. You know? Like, no one, probably. And the kids knew her as Mum Bet. So so that's why you'll see a lot of places that she, or sometimes that's pushed together and it's just written as, like, Mum Bet. But I'm like, that's, like, okay, those are little kids calling her that. Like, that's an affectionate term. Right. You know? So Elizabeth worked for the Sedgwicks for the rest of her life and died in December of 1829. And because we do not know her birth date, we can only estimate that she was around 85 years old. Uh, so, I mean, she lived a pretty, pretty long life, all things considered. She was buried in the Sedgwick family plot in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and is the only non-Sedgwick buried there. It's a family plot. She is the only person who is not related Wow. Directly to them yeah. by like blood or marriage who is buried there. Wow. And her tombstone that the Sedgwick family like paid for yep. and engraved reads, Elizabeth Freeman, also known by the name of Mumbet, died December 28th, 1829. Her supposed age was 85 <laughs> years. I'm just going to repeat everything that That's I wrote. Um, she was born a slave and remained a slave for nearly 30 years. She could neither read nor write, yet in her own sphere, she had no superior or equal. 
She neither wasted time nor property. She never violated a trust nor failed to perform a duty. In every situation of domestic trial, she was the most efficient helper and the tenderest friend. Good mother, farewell. Oh, that's so sweet. The tenderest friend. Like, like this is a woman who was born into slavery and like she, she is working for this white family, but she's being paid and they see her as, as a friend and as family. And I, I just, that just, I tear up. It breaks my heart. Yeah. Elizabeth's case was a nail in the coffin of slavery in Massachusetts. She was actually cited as precedent when Quack Walker's ruling was appealed. So I mentioned him earlier, like a, like the second Massachusetts constitution added that line, all, all these enslaved people were like, oh, hell no, we are not doing this anymore. So his ruling was appealed uh, and her case was cited as precedent, which led the courts to upholding his freedom too. Because remember, the Ashleys had dropped their appeal, so hers stood uncontested. The Sheffield Historical Society unveiled a statue in her honor in August of 2022, um, which honored her role in the freedom of enslaved people in Massachusetts. And then we're we're revisiting W.E.B. My God, I've had too much wine. W.E.B. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois. He has alleged that Elizabeth Freeman is actually his relative, saying that she married his maternal great-grandfather. However, and I'm 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 not trying to step to Du Bois here. Like he's he's the shit. Uh however, there is evidence contrary to this, and it's hard to know the validity because we don't even know who the father of Elizabeth's child was, or if they were married, and like there are no marriage records, and it's possible her daughter married the ancestor of W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, but it's messy. It's messy, but I think I want to include this because it's a really good testament to how slavery has obscured family trees and heritage and made that a very difficult web to untangle and has actually like inherently just robbed people of their heritage. Right. You know, and, and just how sad that is. Yeah. And bullshit. Uh, Yeah. So I want to end this with a quote by Elizabeth, because again, we don't have many of her words. She said, she was quoted as saying, anytime, Anytime while I was a slave, if one minute's freedom had been offered to me and I had been told I must die at the end of that minute, I would have taken it just to stand one minute on God's air, a free woman, I would. And that is the story of Elizabeth, literally Freeman, who sued for her freedom. Yeah, I thought that That's was really amazing. cool. I actually, when I was looking for her story, I, I was looking for um, stories of black women during the American Revolution. And because I was looking like for veteran stories, you know, I was already kind of on that military kick. And I know black women have served in the military, you know, as long as anyone else has. Right. In their own capacity. Um, but her story came up and I'm like. That is, that's awesome. And her character, you know, even though we don't have a lot directly from her, how her character shines through 
And I feel like we got to kind of know her as a person through that, which we don't always get with the women we cover. Right. Especially when their history is so cloudy. Yes. Yeah. But I I mean, that story of her defending another person. It's amazing. Like, that's kind of all I need to know. She was like, "Mm -mm, we're not doing this. Fuck this shit. This isn't right. She, She had this inherent sense of what's right and wrong. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah. This was an emotional episode. Yeah, it was. There were a lot of feelings. Um, I'm, I can't quite recover. It's fine. Um, Kelly, while I'm crying over here, what are you thankful for? <laughs> I got you again. you're laughing. <laughs> um, thankful for my dogs being such good dogs right now. Yeah, we've been recording with the dogs in the studio for the past few episodes, and they've actually been fantastic. So I'm sorry if you were a huge fan of Navi scratching against the door with rage. <laughs> hopefully we'll be never again. Um, Hopefully that's not going to be a thing anymore, which is super funny because she did not want to come into the studio. Right. I was like, bye, Navi. And then like we went about our thing. And then like right before we start recording, she was like, OK, I'm coming in now. No, no, no. <laughs> and, and that's exactly how it works with kids. You're like, OK, I guess I'm leaving you here. And you walk away. And then they're like, no. I am, though. I am very thankful for my dogs. They're very, like, they're not trained whatever animals, but they're very, they're my animals. Nope, she doesn't want to come up. I am, okay. What are you Spe- Speaking for? of animals, this is kind of like a weird, weird thankfulness thing. Okay, I actually, this is two parts. I'm very thankful to my dad. What's up, Mark? Uh, who... who <laughs> mercifully does not listen to this podcast i actually i think i played my mom and dad part of the mother's day episode we my did mom the listened first to the mother's year day episode. i don't think she's listened to an episode since well i i mercifully played the part where i told my mom's story and she like every time she's like oh god emily like rolling her eyes like if, if you know my mom you can see this happening and no, here's the thing. My parents are very supportive. They give me recommendations. They ask how they can listen, but there is a technological barrier there. And right. I'm not super eager to You're help like, them overcome mm, it. You know, it's fine. Maybe, maybe just imagine me the way you think I am instead of experiencing me the way I am. <laughs> um, but my dad watches Arthur when I go out of town and Arthur, lo- oh my God, Arthur loves him so much. Like, they're best friends now. That's adorable. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, my parents will also watch the the cheese. Sometimes when I go out of town or my friends Robin and Adam will watch them. And I'm, I'm very you thankful. You know I would, too. I know you would. And actually, you're, you're on my bench. Like, if all else fails. Actually, I don't know if I told this story on the podcast, but when I went to Florida... I boarded the dogs, and this is the first time I've ever boarded them. I've always had someone to watch them, but it was a little too long for my parents to watch them. They've got cats, and the dogs are assholes. That's all that needs to be said. I mean, yeah, kind of. They're, they're not, lo- like, too bad of assholes, but I, I could see them with cats, like, there's being a, assholes. There's a lot of trauma that my parents' cats experience, because they they're not used to dogs. Right. Um, and then it, w- it was over the holidays, so I didn't want to ask any friends to do it. It was over Christmas. So I boarded them and they were great for the first four days. And I get a call. I've got like 48 hours left in my trip. I get a call in the evening from the kennel and they're like, yeah, your dog started like getting green diarrhea. 
And I'm like, oh God. You're like, that sounds terrible. I'm like, do you think it's stress related? And the guy's like, oh no, it, it's almost certainly stress related. And you know, the, the kennel is connected to a vet clinic so they can treat the dogs. Like if there's a medical situation, I'm like, well, do you think it'll clear up? And they're like, well, it probably won't clear up until the source of the stress is gone, which is being, being here. here. Yeah. And we can definitely they can give last them three days is what you found out. And they can, def- you know, they, they would be able to give, be given IVs and be taken care of, but that's super expensive. I'm like, these dogs might literally bankrupt me in 48 hours. So I called my parents. I called Robin. I was calling around. And my parents, as a last resort, would have taken them. But Kelly, being a goddamn superhero, was like, yeah, I got this. She went to the kennel, picked them up. And the my two dogs stayed with her two dogs. She has four dogs in her fucking house until I picked them up. Yeah, for two days, everyone got along. Mm -hmm. There was some. There wasn't like a dominance issue, but it was really funny because like the the two cheese would be on one person and the two pugs would be on the other person. They would not intermingle. It was super funny. I hope they're all staring each other down. Yeah, like there was. There was a little bit of growling at the beginning, like mm-hmm. more like establishing boundaries. But yeah, it was just super funny because like the cheese would be on me and then the pugs would be on Justin. Yeah, and the they cheese would just like look love at each you. other. Well, and here's the thing. Charlie loves you because Char- oh, I had Max Charlie when I was uh, when I lived with you. Mac- Max just loves to cuddle. Yeah. No, it went really well. The second half that I'm thankful for, that's animal related. On the same day. I got two separate recommendations. So, so Max, my little waif, my little Victorian orphan yeah. of a Chihuahua. This is not his fault. His previous home wouldn't get him neutered. He picked up the habit of marking. I finally got him neutered and he's gotten a lot better, but it still happens. And it's like, well, I work during the day. You know, I you know have to leave him alone at times. And I really don't want to kennel him because him and Charlie and then my friend's right. dog who comes over, they all hang out and they love each other. So on the same day, I got two separate recommendations for these things called belly bands. Where oh, yeah. basically yep. it's just, okay, don't, no, do not say that like no. you knew and just never told me. I only know because that half, we have a, one of my coworkers brings their Corgi in and yeah, he's, he's young enough that he's had some problems with marketing. Mm-hmm. So they just got him a belly band. Okay. So like it was a recent development. Fucking better have been. But basically it, it's like it's like a little band that wraps around the dog's penis so that they just they literally cannot mark. And my friend, so so I got this recommendation from a coworker and then found out that my friend Robin who watches him sometimes actually has them. They used them when he was over cuz when he's in a new environment yeah. he gets he gets marky. His dogs do. He gets marky mark. Um so she she gave me one, and it's a disposable one, but I keep reusing it because he hasn't, like, well, messed it up. Yeah. And it's been great. Like, he has not marked in my house when I'm at work, so I'm going to get him, like, a reusable, washable one that doesn't look like a diaper. Right. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm thankful, I don't know, just, like, for the support that I have from the people around me for my animals because they're, they're incredibly important to me. I love them so much. And here's the thing. I will be the first one to say they're all assholes, but I will also be the first one to say, you don't get to call them assholes. I will fight you. <laughs> That's the relationship. I love your dogs. They're very, they're good. They really are good. Well, thank you so much for listening to my rants about uh, chihuahuas and marking and belly bands.
Oh, and also the herstory stuff that we talked about. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod. Twitter at W. I like forgot which one we were on for a second. I, I think we're both trying to forget Twitter. We've got, yeah. we've, okay. In our defense, like for Twitter, we've pissed off some turfs and some sexists and some racists in the past. Especially month. like lately. Like it just makes me so mad. It's crazy how mad people get when you post quotes of strong black women. And we've been pissing a lot of people off, and I am here for it. Let's piss them all off. Yeah, sorry. So Twitter at WH underscore Potter website is whiningabouthistory.com where you can find everything. Links to everything um, where you should rate us five stars because you love us. And then our merch is on there. You should buy some shit. And then we have a Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1 a month. We have a new design where it's one star. If you're looking for a serious history (laughs) podcast slash discussion. Yeah, no, I finally made that merch and I'm so excited. It's my favorite new thing. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day, y'all. Bye. Bye.